Pope Pius IX, who was the Pope behind all of this, mm-hmm. was beatified and is in the beginning stages of becoming a saint. I like know enough about Catholicism to know that's like some sort of process. First you're beatified. Yeah. And then you can become a saint. You have to have done miracles or something. That's for Catholic history nerds. <laughs> Our sister podcast. Welcome to Jewish History Nerds, where we do exactly what it sounds like, nerd out on awesome stories in Jewish history. Anya L. Steiner, and my childhood dream was to stay in school forever. I'm Jonathan Schwab, and I am in school forever. Yael, what story do you have for us today? The story that I'm going to share today is profoundly sad. Okay. But I have to say, I enjoyed preparing for it so much. It's a really interesting, thought-provoking, philosophical soap opera. Hmm. And while the result is not one that's particularly happy for the Jewish people, it is just a treasure trove for history nerds. Hmm. I feel like this could be anything. (gasps) Jon Stewart had a line once when he was hosting the Oscars and Steven Spielberg was nominated for Munich. And he goes, Schindler's List, Munich. I can't wait to see what happens to us next. Oh, gosh. He's like, trilogy. Mm. Oh, man. I'm obviously making light of the fact that, unfortunately, there have been many tragedies in Jewish history. And the story of Edgardo Mortara, who is the man we're going to be talking about, is one of them. That's not a name I'm familiar with. It wasn't a name that I was familiar with either. And once I'd done the research, I was fairly shocked that this was not something that had come up ever in my Jewish education. It's fairly modern. Uh Edgardo Mortara was born in 1851. That is fairly modern. We have photographs of these people. And over 20 stories ran about this incident in the New York Times. So we're really talking Uh about modernity Uh here. But when we get into the nitty gritty of what actually happened, you'll think, are we back in medieval ruling eras? And you said you were shocked that it hadn't come up before. So it's not like this story has been suppressed in some way. It's just it's not a part of the series of stories we tell. Not at all suppressed, though the Catholic Church doesn't love talking about it. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're involved, sure. But the authoritative book on this incident came out in 1997. Yeah, so who is Edgar Mortara and and what happened? And what did the Catholic Church do this time? So Edgardo Mortara was six years old in 1858. If he's like any typical six-year-old, he probably would want me to tell you that he was almost seven mm, Yes, in June of 1858. I know a couple six-year-olds who are almost seven, and like those, he was probably a huge fan of this podcast. And he grew up in a middle-class home in Bologna, Italy. <laughs> and one thing to note going forward is that at that time, Italy was divvied up into a variety of kingdoms. There were some independent states. There were other independent states that were not aligned with the first group that I mentioned. And there was an area that was ruled governmentally by the Vatican called the Papal States. Mm -hmm. And Bologna was part of the Papal States, where the Pope 
essentially functioned as king as well as pontiff. Mm -hmm. And this is all happening in the very few years that lead up to the unification of Italy, which I think is called the Resurgimento Mm -hmm. or something like that. And that's something to keep in mind because the Pope's knowledge that his power was waning and likely on very shaky ground probably has a lot to do with his response to this particular Mm -hmm. incident. Mm -hmm. So Edgardo Mortara, six years old, summer 1858, he was one of eight children. His father and brother are not home. And one evening there's a knock at the door and the papal police essentially in Bologna said that they were there to take Edgardo away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On what grounds? The rationale they gave for taking Edgardo away was that, A, it was by the order of the Pope, (laughs) but it was by the order of the Pope because Edgardo had previously been baptized. Mm. As a baptized person, he had to be raised as a Catholic in a Catholic environment. Mm. So, Yeah, how did he wind up being baptized? So there are two things here. One is, how did he get baptized? Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is, the lawyer in me... Mm-hmm. whose thoughts were borne out in the book, The Kidnapping of Edgardo Mortara, by David Kurtzer, who is the preeminent scholar of this particular incident, mm-hmm. is it's one thing for them to come in and say, we're taking your child because he's been baptized. But first, let's actually answer the question, was he really baptized? Mm-hmm. Can I ask a question before we even get to that question? Of course. Is this an isolated incident or is this a thing where the papal police are going around house to house? And saying, one of your kids was baptized, we're taking them away now, and raising them as Catholics like they're supposed to be. It was not unheard of. <laughs> Several hundred years earlier, I don't want to say it happened frequently, but it happened slightly more frequently. By the 19th century, it really didn't happen. The church had adopted a policy very expressly saying that they would not be baptizing children against the will of their parents. <laughs> Sounds like a good policy, yeah. They recognized parental authority over their children. (laughs) So it wasn't happening in the 19th century. But that doesn't mean that they acknowledged that anyone who had otherwise been baptized shouldn't be raised Mm. a Catholic. You shouldn't be forcibly baptizing people. But once it happens... Exactly. So the rumor is that when Edgardo was an infant... He had been extremely, extremely ill. And the domestic worker who lived in the Mortaris home, a Catholic woman named Anna Morisi, who was young and unmarried, and that will come into play a little bit later on, Anna Morisi, out of very good intentions and fondness for the Mortara family, upon seeing that his family was praying, She secretly sprinkled water on him and said the baptismal prayer because she believed that he was on the brink of death and she wanted him to be able to go to heaven. And Catholics believe that anyone who's not baptized obviously cannot go on to the world to come Uh or the positive aspect of the world to come. So her intentions... Very good. Mm -hmm. We have absolutely no reason to believe that she was anti-Semitic. Right. We have no reason to believe that she wished harm upon the Mortara family. Mm -hmm. And that's very different than 
I don't know, like an organized surreptitious campaign to baptize lots of children. Like that's a person who is clearly meaning well. And yeah. Yeah. She loved this child. She loved this family. And so she did what she thought was the best thing for his immortal soul. Mm-hmm. The Mortars really liked her and she liked them. They had taken her in as an employee. She was a single woman who ultimately, while she's working for the Mortaras, is impregnated. They send her away to a foundling hospital where they pay for her care. And after her child is born, and then I assume put up for adoption, she came back to work for them. Uh And they paid her wages. And there's no reason to believe there was any bad blood between these two sides Uh of this equation. That baby's not coming back into the story, right? Like that was like... No, it's not. It's not. Oh, that's either like an irrelevant tangent or or we're going to find out in act three that like that baby is the They get married. That's Edgardo's wife. No, they don't. That baby does not come back into the equation. But it should also be known that Anna Maurice did not share the fact that she baptized the child Mm -hmm. with the Mortaras. Obviously, she knew that that's something they would not approve Mm -hmm. of and it would anger them, Uh but she did it in what she said were she thought were the child's Mm -hmm. final moments. And she does, though, share that with somebody else, I'm assuming. That's the question. Mm -hmm. So thankfully, Edgardo recovers. He grows into a healthy, bright six-year-old boy. And at some point in the few months preceding his taking, it is brought to the attention of people in the village that Anna Maurice had done this. Mm-hmm. The prevailing theory is that she had mentioned it to a friend. The friend mentioned it to the parish priest. The parish priest mentioned it to the inquisitor in Bologna at that time because mm-hmm. the inquisition was actually still going on mm-hmm. in Bologna at mm-hmm. that time, as it was in other places in that area of the world. And the inquisitor sent word to Rome asking what to do, and the order came down we need to take this child and raise him ourselves as a Catholic. Later on, when the Mortaras are trying to disprove that the child had ever been baptized as one legal route towards getting him back, they bring testimony from various villagers saying that it's not true, this whole story is made up. Anna Maurice's testimony that she learned the baptismal prayer from one of the grocers in town is refuted. The grocer says, I don't know what you're talking about. She never spoke to me about this boy. Uh. I never taught her the baptismal prayer. I don't know if that was true or not true. But the villagers really supported the Mortara family in this to the extent that when they try to discredit Anna Maurice's character down the line to say she's not a reliable narrator, Uh one man comes forward. Well, basically they... There are a lot of rumors that are... So so curious what he says. There are so, a lot of rumors that are circulated that she is a loose woman, uh-huh. which I guess is borne out by the fact that she had previously had this child. Yeah. And this one man testifies that she could not have baptized the child because at the time that she was alleged to have done this, he was watching her have relations with a soldier <laughs> through a peephole in the wall. Testifying about observing people having relations seems to come up far more often in these podcasts than I ever thought it would. Guys, that's not the kind of people we are. <laughs> but 
this guy uh-huh. was willing to take one for the team mm-hmm. yeah and out himself as a creeper uh-huh. in order to help the mortara family potentially get back their son wow I've gone way ahead yeah, yeah, yeah. into their legal strategy at trying to get their son back. First, let's talk. So I gathered by contact that he does get taken away yes. and they work very hard to try to get him back. Yes. So let's go back to that evening. Okay. Obviously, his mother is distraught. She's like, what are you talking about? She's clinging to the child. The father and brother come home. They also don't know what to do. Someone goes out to get a rich uncle type. Mm-hmm. You seem to have had connections in the town. And this uncle of Mrs. Mortara was able to get a 24-hour stay from the police <laughs> to let the child stay with the family for 24 hours. During those 24 hours, the home was heavily guarded because there was a fear that the parents would try to sneak the child away mm-hmm. or even to the Catholic mind, sacrifice him uh, rather than letting him be taken yeah. as a Catholic. Uh-huh. It should be noted that the police officers who came to the home, as well as even the Inquisitor, who goes on trial a lot later on for activities having to do with this story, were not happy to be carrying out these orders. Uh-huh. There's testimony both from the police officers and from those observing the situation that the police officers did not want to be tearing this child out of his parents' arms, that some of them seemed very hesitant or even teary-eyed at carrying out this particular mission. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So ultimately, at the end of the day, Many of the people involved here who do things that are detrimental to Edgardo and the Mortara family come off as very human and don't come off as malevolent, but it's, you know, I was just following orders, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Yeah. And we have to remember that at that time, the Pope was the Pope King. Yeah. Like it's not just a religious instruction, but it's it's also a state function. Like it's right. political and religious and in charge of the police. So ultimately, they managed to get Mrs. Mortara out of the house somehow by encouraging her to be comforted by friends. And after the 24-hour stay expired and appealing to the Catholic hierarchy in the city did not work, Mr. Mortara was, you know, holding the boy, sort of bringing him out to the carriage to be taken with the strong belief that this whole thing would be rectified shortly and that there's no way that the powers that be were going to tear a child from his parents' arms for this reason. (laughs) And basically appealing to the Catholic hierarchy and the city doesn't work. The Jewish community tries to appeal to the Rothschilds who were providing capital to the Vatican um, at that time. I'm getting to understand that they can make anything in the world happen. So I'm surprised to hear that wasn't successful. It's really interesting because that is sort of an accusation that's levied today and has zero truth to it. Mm-hmm. I don't even think any members of the Rothschild family are still Jewish or identify as Jewish. But at that time, there were Rothschild banks mm-hmm. that were providing capital to the Vatican. And even they were not able to prevail Mm -hmm. upon the administration to get involved here. Mm -hmm. What 
ends up happening is that a brother-in-law of one of the Rothschilds is Sir Moses Montefiore. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with that name. He's a builder of windmills in Israel, I'm pretty sure. Yes. There's a beautiful neighborhood in Jerusalem named after him. You mean Moshe. And there's a windmill there. I don't think he built it, but in my mind, they're very associated. Yes, he's highly associated. He's the rich windmill guy. He's the hospital in the Bronx guy. Yeah, I'm very familiar with that as well. He is the chair of the Board of Deputies of British Jews, which is an important title. Mm -hmm. Jews in Britain are starting to really become part of the higher echelons of society. A Jew had just become a member of parliament for the first time. Mm -hmm. And Moses Montefiore had just successfully returned from a voyage to the Middle East where he tried to disprove a blood libel. Mm -hmm. And he was a swashbuckling fixer in the Jewish world Mm. at that time. And he tried to intervene. He traveled to Rome to get an audience with the Pope. Wow. He never gets to the Pope. He kind of gets to the second in command. And the word that comes down from the Pope via the second in command is, we understand your sadness, Mm -hmm. your dissatisfaction with this Mm -hmm. situation. But like the law is the law. The law is the law. And this is a Catholic boy and he needs to be raised as a Catholic and to let him be raised in a Jewish home would put him in a state of apostasy. (laughs) So in the interim, Edgardo had been taken to a school in Rome that was particularly for Jews who were becoming Catholics. Sure. The Pope actually financially supported Edgardo for the rest of his life um, and endowed a trust for him. Mm. Edgardo was taken to this school where he excelled It happens to be that this person turned out to be a prodigy, that the one boy who got ensnared in this whole situation Mm. ended up speaking at least six languages, Wow! including the Basque language, which is apparently exceedingly difficult to learn. Mm -hmm. Though some in the Catholic community say that this was all part of the plan, is that, of course, this boy is a prodigy because this is a boy who was chosen to be a Catholic and was always meant to be a Catholic. Mm. Like not the baptism made him prodigious. No, no, no. When Moses Montefiore gets nowhere with the Pope, he brings this to the attention of the American Jewish community. Uh-huh. And there are rallies and protests all over the United States. 3,000 people gather in San Francisco, of uh-huh. all places. I mentioned, I think, the 20 articles, maybe even 30 articles. Uh-huh. In the New York Times about this, uh, the Baltimore paper, the Milwaukee paper. Wow. um, I believe the Boston paper all Uh covered this. Uh It became a huge cause celebre. I think that's how you pronounce that. I have no idea how to pronounce it. That is a thing I've definitely only ever seen written. It sounds like in our childhood, there was a story about a young boy from Cuba who... Elian Gonzalez. This young boy who is separated from his family, and there's a public swelling of support behind saying, like, this child belongs with his family. I don't remember exactly what it was, that he was separated from his family, and yeah. And they just were not 
swayed by the appeals that he's a child, he's not at fault, he should get to stay with his family. A hundred percent, there are so many parallels here. I did write about him in my notebook that I'm holding in my hand. Uh Rabbi Wise of Cincinnati, one of the founders of Reform Judaism, wrote an extremely, extremely anti-Catholic op-ed in one of the papers where he casts the Pope as the Prince of Darkness. And obviously that's an extremely Voldemortian descriptor. But one of the reasons he's able to get away with it is that anti-Catholic sentiment in the U.S. is very high at this point in time. A lot of Italian immigrants coming in and Irish immigrants. And I guess the xenophobic element took shape as Mm anti-Catholic sentiment. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't as though the Pope had a ton of support in the United States at this time, Mm -hmm. but interest really grew in the U.S. I think interest in the U.S. about this outlasted interest in Europe. Yeah. It feels like it's it's an easy narrative for people to grab onto of like, well, that seems like a very dated definition of religion that because this ritual was performed, therefore another religion gets to lay claim to this person's identity. That's not really how we view things in a modern sense. And anyone who's a parent, and you don't even have to be a parent, I'm not a parent, mm-hmm. but anyone who has a loved one can sit back and say, how yeah. could you do right. this to like, a six-year-old right. boy? Like children should not be ripped from their homes. Because allegedly someone at some point performed some right on them that no one asked for. It's a time in human history when people are starting to think about the doctrinal elements of their religions Mm -hmm. and how they can square with life in the modern world, which is certainly something that we still deal with today. But they were dealing with it then in their own ways um, when thinking about the most devout Catholics who might think that Edgardo would be relegated to hell for not being baptized and for living as a Jew can still understand why there was cruelty in this Mm -hmm. and still could have declined to participate in this particular mission. Just to follow up on one thing about the U.S. involvement, This was definitely communicated to President Buchanan Uh in 1859. He declines to get involved for a variety of reasons. One of the main reasons why he didn't get involved is because literally the country was a tinderbox. This is 1859. The Civil War is months away from starting. Uh And he had his hands full. But in a related manner, he said, how am I going to get involved in the fate of this young boy who was stolen from his parents? when I have thousands, if not tens of thousands of children who are being stolen from their parents <laughs> all the time in on my, my country, soil yeah. as slaves. Wow. So that was his argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't saying he thought any of it was right. So he does not get involved. All of the efforts fail. The money efforts, the press efforts, the personal pleas, the legal route, everything fails. Edgardo continues is learning. He continues to thrive in the schools that he's educated in. By the time he's 10, the Pope is even sort of taking him out on display Uh as this amazing Catholic prodigy child. Uh And I guess Edgardo at that point loved his life. Right. Like embraces this, I assume. 
like doesn't know anything different or doesn't remember. Yeah. Right. Edgardo learns to love his surroundings. But they have a lot riding on it also. Like there are a lot of things you can do to make children happy. And I assume they very much wanted him to be happy, you know? Yes. Yes, absolutely. They weren't taking him to keep him in a dungeon. Mm-hmm. They were taking him and trying to give him the best Catholic life mm-hmm. they could. They just were paying no heed to the fact that they had done this terrible thing to both to the child and to his family. Mm-hmm. His family did have visitation rights, limited oh, visitation rights. He was able to see them a few times over the years. It really pained them to see how much he had acclimated mm-hmm. to life in the church. He really was being treated as a son by the Pope. Yeah. Almost. There's some written evidence that the Pope writes something about. He understands that this child was taken from his biological parents, but he goes, but I am also his father. Mm-hmm. Of course. And I'm dreading asking this question because I feel like you are clear that it's a sad story, but like, how does his adult life unfold, you know, and like, where does he wind up? So by the time he's 19, he is well known as a preacher. Mm-hmm. He basically takes it upon himself to proselytize to other Jews all over the world about why they should become Catholic. Mm-hmm. When he's 19 in 1870, the papal states completely fall. Mm-hmm. Italy is unified and someone gets it into Edgaro's head that he's emancipated basically. Mm-hmm. And he can leave Italy if he wants to. And I think his life had gotten so challenging there just because he was this public figure in a way that he probably never wanted to be. (laughs) He flees to Belgium and that's where he spends most of the rest of his life as a home base. Mm -hmm. But he travels around the world preaching around the time that Italy is unified. He's preaching in France and his mother and brother come to see him. I've left out of this story the fact that during the decline of the Papal States, the Pope was heavily reliant on the French for defense, and Napoleon III had actually intervened with the Pope and said, if you do this, our diplomatic relations are over. Wow. So it really, really hastened the fall of the Papal States, and Edgardo's brother ends up joining the French forces, I think, partially because of that. And that's the way that he's able to bring his mother to go hear Edgardo speak. And from that time on, they maintained regular contact, but it was never anything beyond him respecting his mother because Uh the Bible tells us to respect our parents. Uh And I do think he loved her, but he never once contemplated going back. In fact, his path was that he was constantly trying to convince the remainder of his family to convert to Catholicism so that they could all be together. Uh And in fact, that was one of the options that was presented to the Mortaras early in this Uh saga, was if you guys all convert... Right, then you can continue living off... Then it's all good. Honestly, there are parents who would make that decision Uh in a heartbeat. Uh And that's why this story is so complicated. And I don't think we're going to have time to talk about this, but in a similar vein, there are so many children who were hidden in the Holocaust by wonderful, wonderful Catholic families Mm -hmm. 
a lot of them are not returned to their Jewish families. A right. lot of them don't have families to return to, mm-hmm. but a lot of them aren't returned right. and grow up as good, happy Catholics. People are in their 80s, 90s, finding out for the first time that they were Jews. Mm-hmm. I feel like I like I grew up hearing the stories of the kids who are returned to their families when they're, you know, 12 or 13, because then they spend the rest of their lives as Jews. And like, they're the ones who speak in synagogue on the Holocaust Remembrance Day, things like that. Right. But the culture shock mm-hmm. that those children and adolescents went through, imagine being hidden away at the age of three mm-hmm. by a Catholic family during wartime, where they obviously never tell you that you were born a Jew, because how traumatic would that be? Mm-hmm. Find out that your parents left you here and then they were taken to a death camp. Mm-hmm. Those children find out at age 12 or 13, there's actually a famous case in Italy where there were two brothers whose parents were killed and an aunt tried to get them back. She ends up prevailing after a long time, but if you're a good Catholic boy who's grown up mm-hmm. in Catholic school, and then you go live with an aunt you've never met who tells you you're a Jew, mm-hmm. it's very challenging situation all around, which is, again, why I talked a lot about intentions here, because yeah. this isn't only about doctrine. This is also sometimes about the well-being of humans. Mm-hmm. And if the Mortaras would have caved to that request that they all convert what precedent does that set? Is it? I don't think anyone would have blamed them. So yes, Edgardo becomes a fairly well-known preacher. He travels all over the world. He's brought to the United States by a group of Catholics in Brooklyn. But that group of Catholics in Brooklyn ultimately asks him not to speak in New York because relations between the Jewish community and the Catholic community in New York were just starting <laughs> to get better. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to throw a firebomb yeah. into that, but he did preach all over the country. There were a lot of people who were very curious about him. He's well-received as a preacher by uh-huh. Catholics all over the world. He lives out the rest of his life in Belgium, uh-huh. and he dies at the age of 80 oh. in Belgium, oh. just a few months before the Nazis invade Belgium. Mm-hmm when he would have been deported and most likely killed. The Nazis consider him Jews, yeah. Like, what is Jewish identity, right? It's like something that, that like comes up all the time. That's such a part of this story, because from the Catholic Church's perspective, doesn't matter how he was raised for the first couple of years, doesn't matter who his parents are, because he was baptized, he's Catholic, not Jewish. And then, you know, the Nazis, also not Jews, would say, doesn't matter how he lived his entire life, just based on his birth, he is a Jew. Seems like everyone's always asserting just whatever it is that is the worst thing for the Jews. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We're going to choose the worst possible outcome. Yeah. I was surprised that you said that he died at the age of 80 because I thought you were going to say he dies very young and he lived this like brief, very sad life. But it sounds like he spent no. 74 years as a Catholic. Like, yeah. He lived a long life, happy in the Catholic Church after having spent his childhood as a very famous little boy, Pope Pius IX, who was the Pope behind all of this, Uh was beatified and is in the beginning stages of becoming a saint. Uh I like know enough about Catholicism to know that's like some sort of process. First you're beatified, and then you can become a saint. You have to have done miracles or something. I don't know. That's for Catholic history nerds. Our sister podcast. 
The Catholic Church has never apologized. I was going to ask incident. that. Has there been a, a reckoning and a realization? None, yeah. none whatsoever, though. Mm-hmm. David Kurtzer, who I mentioned as mm-hmm. a preeminent scholar of this, does make clear that Jewish-Catholic relationship has changed tremendously mm-hmm. since Vatican II mm-hmm. in the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these things that we're talking about have been rectified by the church in good faith, certainly by a lot of members of the church, not everybody, but we are in a totally different place now mm-hmm. in our relationship with the Catholics. But even as much as that is true, there has never been an apology for this incident. Earth. And there are plenty of people today who say the church shouldn't apologize because they were just following canon law. And we don't change the canon law for your feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not arguing for it. Like, all religions have to grapple with things like this in some way of just like, well, according to the law, we shouldn't be forcibly baptizing people. But once it happens... What do we do? Like, according to our laws, this person is Catholic and we cannot deprive them of the education and and the requirements that all Catholics have. If you view the canon law as the will of God, same as if you view the Torah as the will of God, Mm -hmm. you cannot be persuaded to put it aside for contemporary sensibilities. And that's what's really hard in today's day and age where we respect people's religious beliefs and we respect diversity. But what happens when that respect yields a line crossing Mm -hmm. that is hurtful? And that's why I think this is still so relevant to us today, not Mm -hmm. only because of this tragic thing that happened to a young Jewish boy and his family, but because we deal with these issues in our own Jewish lives every day. Yeah. But then there's also a part of me, like if you're saying that we have to do this, like aren't there thousands of Catholic children probably who also should be given all of the resources and be getting an education and personal attention from the Pope? And like, it seems like you're very specially focusing on this one person. And like, if every single Catholic kid in Italy was getting that same level of attention and resources, I would buy it a little more. But it kind of seems like there is an element of like politics here and like deliberately doing something. Right. Are you going into homes of Catholic families who are non-observant and taking their kids away? And making them all be forcibly educated in the same way. Right. And there's so much here. I could not recommend David Kurtzer's book more highly. Actually, one of the criticisms that he got for his book was that it must not be true because it reads like a novel. It's so well-written. The most interesting part of this story is that before an hour ago when we started, I had never heard of this, and I, I, know. I don't understand how this isn't something that we talk about more. It's important, and I really mean this sincerely. I was thinking about this this morning. I'm so grateful that I have the opportunity to learn things like this yeah. because it's so crazy to me that I had never heard of it before. Mm-hmm. It enhanced my gratitude that I have the opportunity to do this podcast with you and learn new things. Thank you for listening to Jewish History Nerds, a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. If you like this show, subscribe on your podcast app of choice. And while you're at it, give us five stars and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. And most importantly, be in touch. Write to us at nerds at jewishunpacked.com. This episode was hosted by Jonathan Schwab and Yael Steiner. Our education lead is Dr. Henry Abramson.
Audio was edited by Rob Perra and were produced by me, Rifki Stern. Thanks for listening. See you next week.